Buy the truth and sell it not. There's something about the truth, the value of truth, that you can never get enough in return to profit you if you were to sell it. You'd be the loser. Without reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures, much of the knowledge that he brought to our attention this morning will not be yours. That's one reason I try to encourage you so much to become a student of the Word of God, to study God's Word. It's God's Word to you, His blessed Word to you. I really appreciate the message this morning, how much we indeed need to know, and when we know it, we know it, don't we? This morning I'd like to take a look at an experience a man had in the temple with the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus was 40 days old. We look in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 and 26 in the beginning. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. It was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, this time of year, there's a tremendous emphasis, again, on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes you see manger scenes, nativity scenes, and you see uh, the wise men and the shepherds there uh, looking down upon the little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Now, that view is not accurate. That view is not a biblical view. The shepherds indeed came when Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. But the wise men came at a later time. The wise men came when Jesus was probably just under two years of age. But Simeon has an experience with the Lord Jesus Christ when he's 40 days old. You hardly ever hear anything about this, but to me it's one of the most uh, beautiful scenes in the scriptures. Now, just kind of reviewing that just a little bit, we find in the beginning of this chapter the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born in the city of Bethlehem. Now, we find the prophets had spoken about that, had specified the very place of the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after he arrived here, we find where the Lord sent an angel to some shepherds that were watching over their sheep on the hillsides right outside of Bethlehem. Now, the first time the word Bethlehem comes to our attention, the first time the city of Bethlehem is referred to in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. And you'll find where Jacob was traveling and his wife Rachel died. And he buried her just outside the city of Bethlehem. That's the first mention of Bethlehem in the scripture. We find when she passed away, when she departed, she was giving birth to her youngest child by the name of Benjamin. She named him a name that means son of my sorrows. But we find where Jacob gave him a name which means son of my right hand. Both of these names point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 3 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There's numerous references in the New Testament to Christ after he went into heaven, sitting down on the right hand of the majesty on high. But if you take a look at Hebrews 1, 3, we find where it says, when he had by himself purged us from our sins, set down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So both these expressions should remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a man of sorrows here in this world. But when he left this world and went back to heaven, he sat down on the right hand. That's the side of honor. He sat down, signifying his work was complete. His work was over. His work was finished. 
Later we find him standing in Acts chapter 7, but that's a different view of Christ. That's a view of him as our great high priest making intercession for us. So Bethlehem is seen actually as a place of death and burial. But the Lord Jesus Christ was born there. So we see it to be a city of life. A city of life because the Son of God, life himself, God whose life personified, his son was born in the city of Bethlehem. Now, they didn't live in Bethlehem. They lived in a town called Nazareth. But as Luke chapter 2 starts out, you'll find where Augustus Caesar uh, put a tax on all those that was in the realm of the Roman Empire. Because of that, you're going to find where Mary and Joseph are going to go to Jerusalem to pay that tax. She's going to end up having that child, not in Nazareth, she's going to have that child in Bethlehem. Now, the prophets had spoken about that. So how in the world did the prophets know she'd be born in Bethlehem when they lived in Nazareth? Because in the book of Isaiah, we find where the Bible says, the Lord declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times to things which are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I'll do all my good pleasure. Notice that expression, declaring. It's an I-N-G on the end of it. He didn't declare, he didn't say he declared the end from the beginning. He's declaring the end from the beginning. The Lord was declaring all through the centuries things that was going to happen several hundred years down the road. So we find then that Micah tells us he'd be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. Daniel himself will specify the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that'll come into play in a few minutes when we talk about Simeon. But nevertheless, the Lord sends an angel to some shepherds. Now, the shepherds were Jewish. And the announcement is made from heaven to the shepherds. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the shepherds, upon hearing that message, were so stirred up by it, they said one to another, let us go and see what's been proclaimed unto us. And they went to Bethlehem, and they found, just like the shepherds had said, there was the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. But I look in Matthew chapter 2, and I find where the Lord does not send an angel to the wise men, the angel sends a star. The wise men live a lot further away from Bethlehem than the shepherds did, and the wise men are not Jewish, the wise men are Gentiles. So the Lord sends a message to the Jewish people, he sends a message to the Gentile people, and he sends it in two different ways. He sends an angel to bring the proclamation of his birth of his son to those shepherds right outside Bethlehem. They had a short distance to get there. The wise men had to travel a lot further, so they were led by a star. And they first come to Jerusalem, and their message is this, where is he that's born king of the Jews? We may see him and worship him. The wise men desired to see him. The wise men desired to worship him. And we find where they got some information from the scribes. The scribes had the scriptures. They understood the scriptures. They knew that when he came, he was to be born in Bethlehem. That's about five miles from Jerusalem, by the way. So the Jewish leaders, only about five miles from where Christ was born, wouldn't go see him. The wise men came to worship him. We're going to find where Herod was going to oppose him. And the scribes are going to ignore him. Those wise men came a long ways. The scribes are five miles away from him and wouldn't go see him. They had the scripture, they knew when he was going to be born, where he was going to be born, etc. They gave the information to others, but they wouldn't apply the information themselves. And so the wise men come. The Bible says they came and they saw the young child. The word young child is used nine times in Matthew chapter 2. 
They didn't come when there's a babe wrapped in swallowing clothes laid in a manger. We're talking about probably close to two years down the road. And you say, well, how do you know that, Brother Lawrence? Because Herod himself inquired diligently of the wise men at the time they saw the star. He didn't inquire diligently of the scribes concerning all these things. And we find where Herod then had all the male children born in Bethlehem under two years old slain. This was a fulfillment of a prophecy found in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. About 600 years before the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find where the Babylonians came down to Jerusalem and took the Israelites in captivity. And they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They burned down uh, the gates. They broke down the walls. They took majority of people captive, left a few there, took majority captive. And some of the captives was taken to a place called Ramah. Ramah is just a short ways from Jerusalem. And in that prophecy, you're going to find now Rachel dies in Ramah just outside of Bethlehem. But in Jeremiah's prophecy, it says Rachel was weeping. It's like Rachel gave birth to her son and died in giving birth to Benjamin. And yet his descendants are going to be taken away captive. Rachel weeping for her children. There's a lot of mothers weeping when the Lord Jesus Christ was born in Herod who was an agent of the devil himself. You say, why do you say that, Brother Lawrence? Well, if you come to John 8, 44 and 45, the Lord Jesus Christ said this concerning Satan. said he was a murderer from the beginning. And said he was a liar and the father of it. We find where Herod lies to the wise men. He tells them, come and tell me where you find it, that I might go and worship him. He didn't want to go and worship the Son of God. He wanted to go and slay the Son of God. So, then he murdered those children that were under two years of age in Bethlehem in an attempt and an effort to slay the Son of God. He was a murderer and he was also a liar. He was an agent of the devil himself. So we find those wise men, however, do not do what Herod said. The Lord warns them in a dream and they leave and go in a different direction in which they came. When they came, they brought three gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. From that, people draw the conclusion there were three wise men. The Bible does not say that, and it's always important to get your Bible facts correct. The Bible does not tell us how many wise men there were. They just brought three gifts. It could have been far more than three. In fact, if you study all the evidence about it, most likely there were. So they left in another direction being warned of God in a dream. Now, we're talking about a, two visitations take place about two years apart. But now we come to Luke chapter 2, and there's going to be something right in between these two. Now remember, the Lord made an announcement concerning his son to the shepherds who were Jews by an angel. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself would become the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. He then sends a star to the Gentiles. And in the book of Revelation chapter 22, we find the Lord Jesus Christ spoken of as the bright and the morning star. So he sends something to remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentile people. They both made an effort to come and see him where all the religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem, even though he was born about five miles away in Bethlehem, ignored him, even though they had an advantage much in every way concerning all the matters we we're talking about. So we come to a time when Jesus is 40 days old. Now, looking above where we read in our text this morning, you're going to find after the wise men returned that Mary and Joseph. Now, I want to pay a little attention to the profile, you might say, of Mary and Joseph right here. Mary and Joseph circumcised Jesus on the eighth day of his life. As a little baby, eight days old, they circumcised him. That was in keeping with what the Lord established with Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before this. 
Remember when he entered into a covenant with Abraham, we find that circumcision became a token or seal of that covenant that God entered into with Abraham. So all male children eight days in, uh, at eight days of age were circumcised. Circumcision can be painful. And this is the first time we find the Lord suffering, you might say, in his life here on behalf of us. They circumcised him at the day, age of eight days. Then we're told that they named him Jesus. Now, they named him Jesus on that eighth day. Why did they name him Jesus? Because that's what the Lord said his name was going to be. Remember what the angel said unto Joseph, Matthew 1, 21, Fear not to take unto Mary to be thy wife, for that which conceived of hers of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I'm beginning to see a picture of Mary and Joseph being very dedicated, very devout people. As we go down this list of things right here, you're going to find that Mary and Joseph were very dedicated followers of God. Joseph and Mary were very faithful to God, and they were very knowledgeable of the Word of God, and they were very obedient to the Word of God. Now, that's the kind of parents that we ought to have today. That's the kind of parents I have tried, me and Karen have tried to be. We were both blessed to have parents she had a dedicated mother. My mother and father was, was you know, uh, were great examples for me and my brothers. We grew up. Mary and Joseph were very faithful parents. Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul tells the church at Ephesus there. He says to the fathers, bring up your children and nurture and admonition of the Lord. All right, that's the responsibility of every father. is to see to it that his children is brought up in the nurture of the Lord and the admonition of the Lord. And Mary and Joseph, now Mary, Joseph is the legal guardian, you might say, the adopted father, if you ever how you want to phrase it, the Lord and Jesus Christ, he was not the biological father of him. But Mary and Joseph were very faithful and dedicated in following the word of God. Let's notice this here in Luke chapter 2. In verse 21, eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child. His name was called Jesus. That's when his name was called that which was so named of an angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, you're going to see the expression law of Moses, law of the Lord, used several times in these verses. According to the law of Moses were accomplished. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. What was the law of purification? Well, you go back and you read about this in Leviticus chapter 12. When a woman had a child, the law of purification was one thing for a male, another thing for a female. But for the male, uh, she was separated for seven days. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Then he was set apart for 33 days. All total, at the age of 40, they bring him to the temple to present him to the Lord. That's obedience to the law of God. I'm not going to tell you every Jewish man and woman, every Jewish husband and wife, every Jewish father and mother did this. Just like I'm not going to tell you every child of God is obedient to the commands of the Word of God. Because they're not. They're not. I wish they were, but they're not. See, all true Christians are children of God. All true disciples are children of God, but not all God's children are disciples and Christians. Some of them fall far short of it. I'm not going to tell you every Jewish man, every Jewish woman did this because there's no record they did. They were supposed to. Mary and Joseph did. They bring him to the Lord. According to the days of her purification were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written 
in the law of the Lord, every male that opened their womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now you go back to Exodus chapter 13. And you're going to find when the Lord brings Israel out of Egyptian bondage, that he gave them a commandment. Every firstborn, not only of woman, but also of beast, belonged to the Lord and had to be redeemed. Why was that? Because when the Lord brought them out of there, the tenth and final plague was what? The death of the firstborn. And the firstborn of every Egyptian, from the king right on down, was slain. The firstborn of every Israelite was spared. Not a single firstborn of the Egyptians was spared. Not a single firstborn of the Israelites was slain. God delivered them all. He went through at midnight. And where there was no blood, where, the lamb, where a lamb had not been slain, the blood had not been put on the side post and lentils, then the firstborn was slain. But where he saw the blood, he passed over. That's where the expression Passover comes from. When you open up Exodus chapter 13, you find where the Lord said, the firstborn of everyone is mine. The Lord put a claim on the firstborn. They had to be redeemed. It's quite interesting to me that Mary and Joseph bring their firstborn, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the laws of purification. They bring him to Jerusalem, and there they have to redeem him. And the price of that redemption was five shekels. You going to redeem the Redeemer? They got the Redeemer in their arms. He's 40 days old. He is the Redeemer, but he has to be redeemed according to the law. Now, when Christ came in this world until he left this world, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law to a jot and to a tittle. He crossed every T and dotted every I. He told his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, think not I've come to destroy the law. That's not why I've come. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. There's not one thing about Moses' law that Jesus Christ ever failed to, to fulfill. There's not one thing about Moses' law that Christ ever violated. Not one. Not one. He came and he satisfied the law perfectly. The law was good, but man who keep the law was imperfect until the perfect one came, you see. And so the Lord Jesus Christ came, he came to fulfill the law to a jot and a tittle, which he did. He's coming to redeem his people. He's spoken of in the Old Testament as the Redeemer. Uh, Tim quoted that from Job 19.25. Job said, I know my Redeemer living. Now let's notice that expression. Notice how personal it is. I know my Redeemer liveth. Job says, I have a Redeemer. I have one. All the family of God had one, but Job gets personal, you see. And I tell you, uh, worshiping God needs to be personal. Needs to be personal. The Apostle Paul said this one time. He said, uh, I frustrate not the grace of God. He said, for he loved me and gave himself for me. There's plenty of passages where the Apostle Paul presents Christ as the uh, substitute for our sins on behalf of all the family of God. But in this text here, in Galatians chapter 2, the last verse of Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said, I don't frustrate the grace of God. The life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If I can't feel it, what good is it for me? He, I, the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Job says, I know my Redeemer liveth. He didn't say, I know a Redeemer liveth. That would have been true. Or the Redeemer liveth. That would have been true. He said, I know my Redeemer liveth. And he shall stand at the latter day. And though the skin worms destroy this my body, that's a fact. Yet in my flesh, that's a fact. 
I shall see God. That's a fact. Job had a divine revelation of that given to him by God. Job, the book of Job is considered to be the oldest book of the Bible. And yet that sounds like New Testament language to me right there <laughs> in Job 19, 25, doesn't it to you? I love that passage of Scripture. In fact, prior to that, here's what Job said. He said, oh, that my words were now written. That they were uh, led in the rock forever. Well, Job, they were written, thank God, and we got them today. Your words were written down, and they were inspired, and they've been preserved. And we have them today to encourage us as God's little children traveling here in this world. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Thirteen times in the book of Isaiah, he refers to God as the Redeemer. The first time in Isaiah 41. Now notice this, the first, Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. There's a major division after chapter 40. It's oftentimes referred to as a small Bible because those first 39 chapters of uh, Isaiah is all about the law. But you come to Isaiah chapter 40 and finish it on out, sounds a lot like the New Testament you see. So in chapter 41, it's the first time the word Redeemer is used by Isaiah, but he used it 13 times from chapter 41 to chapter 66. That was his title in the Old Testament, Redeemer. They have the Redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, but they have to redeem him. <laughs> kind of interesting to me. They got to redeem the Redeemer who will redeem you. They got to redeem the Redeemer by five shekels. Now listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as you know, you're not redeemed by silver and gold. You're not redeemed uh, by silver and gold uh, as received by tradition from your fathers. It's but by the precious blood of the Lamb of God, without spot and without blemish. Gold and silver can never redeem. Gold and silver cannot never buy salvation. And yet right here, Joseph and Mary had to bring to that temple, they had to bring five shekels of silver to redeem the Redeemer. To keep the law, to a jot and to a tittle, they had to pay five shekels of silver to redeem the Redeemer, who will now go on from that point of view, and of course, uh, 33 years later, he will hang upon a cross and obtain what uh, Paul writes in Hebrews 9, 12, as eternal redemption for us. He says, not by the blood of bulls and calves and goats, but by his own blood, he appeared once in the holy places, having obtained, E.D., eternal redemption for us. Redemption is eternal. That means if Christ has paid the price of redemption, it'll never have to be paid again. Uh, have you ever had the misfortune of having to pay a debt twice? Maybe you paid it, got a bill, called, told them you paid it, but you didn't have a receipt for it. Couldn't prove you paid it. You knew you paid it, couldn't prove you paid it. I can assure you, nothing like that's going to happen in eternity. Nothing like that's ever going to happen to you. Not going to happen to me. Not going to happen to one little child of grace, one child of, of promise, my friends. They were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, and that sin debt was taken away and paid, and it's gone forever. You don't have to worry about God charging you twice. Eternal redemption. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have obtain, whom we have for redemption, obtain redemption, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. They bring the Redeemer in their arms to the temple. And they have to pay a redemption price to redeem him according to God's law. Because the firstborn belongs to God. And that's exactly what they do. So they circumcise him day, at age eight days. They call his name Jesus. They bring him to the temple to fulfill the days of purification for Mary, which makes him 40 years, excuse me, 40 days old. He's right in between the shepherds and the wise men. 
How many times you ever hear about Simeon? You hear about the shepherds, you hear about the wise men. What about old Simeon right here when he's 40 days of age? Or we notice another thing. The Lord sent an angel to the shepherds. He sent a star to the wise men. But as we take a look at the life of Simeon in just a little bit, you're going to see he's led by the Spirit of God. He's going to be in the right place at the right time. Not only do they have to redeem the Redeemer, but in verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said, in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves are two young pigeons. Now the Lord made it possible for everybody to fulfill his word, to, to keep his word. Normally we think about a lamb, but a lamb costs some money. This verse tells me right here that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy people, that Mary and Joseph were actually poor people. They did not have a lamb with them, or did they? They had a lamb with them, didn't they? They had the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb of God. That's what John the Baptist said when John 1.29, when he pointed him out. He pointed him out and said to those, said, Behold the Lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. He didn't say, Behold Jesus, that had been true. He didn't say, Behold the Christ, that had been true. He didn't say, Behold God, that had been true. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, spelled with a capital L. Behold the Lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. Here's a world that the sin was taken away by the offering of this Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you start studying that word world in the Gospel of John, it's, the word world is mentioned 80 times in the Gospel of John, not to mention all the other references in the Bible, but you go to John's Gospel, everybody wants to focus on John 3.16, and I don't mind doing that. But there's 79 other references to the word world in John's Gospel besides John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The world of consideration was loved of God. Loved of God so much he sent his only begotten Son. The world of John 1.29 has its sin taken away. Behold the Lamb of God, which take away the sin, what? Of the world. That's the same world he loved right there in John 3.16. And in John chapter 4, we find where Christ has that experience with the Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman leaves her water pot and runs back and tells her fellow Samaritans about this experience she had with Jesus. And when she tells them, they believe because based upon her testimony... And then they go and see for themselves, and then they say this, we believe that thou art the Savior of the world. That word world's the same, represents the same people. In John 1, 29, John 3, 16, John chapter 4, the word world there has to the same people. So let's see what we got there. This world has a Savior. This world right here was loved of God. This world right here had its sin taken away. And you might say, well, it says sin, not sins, Brother Lawrence. Well, that word sin right here, even without an S, just simply means the total summation of all sin. I've illustrated this before. I'll do it again here this morning. You get your credit card bill, and you may have charged 20 things during the month. Hopefully you didn't. But anyway, you may have charged 20 things during the month. And it's going to tell you each charge you made, how much you, how much you charged 20 times. At the bottom, they give you a sum total, don't they? And then if you're smart, you send in the sum total. You do not send in the minimum payment. You send in the sum total. That way you use their money free of charge. You send the sum total. 
You pay the bill, not bills. You pay a lot of bills with one payment that takes care of the bill. And the Lord Jesus Christ put away the sin of the world as the Lamb of God, which means all sin, sins of omission, sins of commission. All sin is included in that little expression, the sin, S-I-N, of the world. Now in John chapter 17, when Christ is praying to the Father, we call this the high priest of prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, he says to the Father, he said, I pray not for the world, but for them thou givest me. Now, I only mention that to point this out. Do you think that Christ would not pray for a world he loved? That he would not pray for a world he paid the sin debt for? He would not pray, the world he was a savior, pray for a world he was a savior of? You know he did. So that must be a different world, right? That must be a different world than the worlds I've been talking to you about. He said, I pray not for the world. You know that doesn't make a lick of sense if it's the same world I've been talking to you about in John 3, 16, John chapter 4, and John 1, 29. It's a world he did not pray for. A world outside the elect of God. A world outside the family of God. So they must make an offering and a sacrifice. They don't have a lamb, yet they do have a lamb because they got the lamb. They got the lamb of God right there with them. They had to redeem the Redeemer. Then they couldn't afford a lamb, so they bring two turtle doves or two pigeons, even though they had the Lamb of God with them, the Son of God himself. So we see that Mary and Joseph are very faithful, very dedicated, and they're keeping the law to a jot and to a tittle. Keeping God's word meant something to Joseph and Mary. That's the kind of parents the Lord Jesus Christ had. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Simeon was not the only man in Jerusalem. But they're going to specify a certain man in Jerusalem and give us his name. His name is Simeon. And the same man was just and devout. Not all men are just, not all men are devout. This man was. That word just and devout describing Simeon tells me a lot. Just and devout, that's three words. But those three words tell me volumes about this man. When I study what the word just and devout mean in the Bible, these three words tell me a great deal about this man. See, in Ecclesiastes 7.20, the wise man Solomon says, There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That describes all mankind by human nature apart from the loving grace of God. Not a just man on the earth. Not one that doeth good and sinneth not. You're not going to find one. That's when Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 and says there's none good. He says, no, not one. <laughs> and there's none righteous. <laughs> no, not one. I don't care who you're thinking about. He by nature. He's not righteous. I don't care who you're thinking about by nature. He is not good. So don't even think about it. That's kind of what he's saying there. You ever, you ever said that to somebody? You're telling them something and you're telling them they're not quite getting it all. You said, don't even think about it. <laughs> uh, sometimes I had to say that to my four children. Don't you even think about it. <laughs> you know, when you tell them not to do something and you can tell you turn away, they're thinking about doing it anyway. I don't know about your children, but my children were normal. They did those things. All right. Just and devout. There's just a few people in the Bible called just. Joseph, the, wife, the husband of Mary, is called a just man, Matthew chapter 1. Mark chapter 6. Herod called John the Baptist a just man. 
We find in Luke chapter 22, the writer tells us Joseph Arimathea was a just man. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was called a just man. So what do you mean by that? It means they were living a life that was obedience to the will of God. That's what made them just. See, there's only one man that's called the just one, spelled with a capital J, and that's mentioned three times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, verse 14, the apostle Peter referred to Jesus Christ as the just one, capital J, capital O. In Acts chapter 7, you're going to find where Stephen is given a a summary of Israel's history, and he brings them up to that present day, and he says, and you took and you crucified the just one, having reference to Christ. Acts chapter 22, there's a man by the name of Ananias. Ananias is sent by God to preach the gospel to Saul of Tarsus and to baptize him and give him a commission, and in giving that commission to Saul of Tarsus, he says you are, are to keep the will of God and see that just one. Three times Christ is referred to as the just one with a capital J, and I remember I mentioned this one time a number of years ago, and Brother Leland Smith, after the service, came up to me and said, Brother Lawrence, just remember, there's just one, just one. <laughs> I said, you're right, Brother Leland, there's just one, just one. And yet that word just is used to describe a category of people upon the face of this earth. But it could not be if there had not been for the just one, who according to 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, we find where the Lord Jesus Christ suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust. By nature, we're all unjust, but the just ones suffer in our place to make us just in the sight of God. When you read in the book of Matthew, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that God, he's instructed us to love our enemies, etc., etc. He says, for the Lord allows the sun to rise on the good and the evil and sends rain upon the just and the unjust. On this earth today, there are people in the category of the just. On this earth today, there's people in the category of the unjust. And nobody being in the category of the just had not been for the just one who justified us and made us just in the sight of God. So he's just. That tells me a lot about this man. And he's also devout. The word devout means circumspect. It means pious. It means devoted and dedicated. Simeon was a just man a pious man, a religious man. He was a dedicated man and a committed man. That's why he's going to receive a special blessing. Now I want to just mention this to you this morning. All God's people are blessed in life one way or the other. But God doesn't give all his blessings away to all of them. He reserves some special blessings for the just and the devout. Cornelius also described as a just and devout man. He was a Gentile, and God's going to send the apostle Peter to preach the gospel unto him, and he's going to hear and believe the gospel, and he's going to be baptized. He and his household, he was blessed in a very special manner, special way, was he? He was what? He was a just and devout man. When Stephen was slain, in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8 opens up and said, devout men took him and buried him. What kind of men took him? Devout men did. He could have said men, and men came and buried him. could have said and certain men came to bury him. Had it been true. But the Bible didn't say men and certain men. The Bible says devout men, pious men, religious men, devoted men, committed men, dedicated men, obedient men. God used them to take his martyr Stephen and bury him. Those who are just and devout, those who live a life. You know, in the book of Micah, what did, you know, there's a question asked, what did the Lord require thee but to live what? Justly? 
and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. When you walk justly, that means in the sight of men, you're responsible, you're accountable, you're honest, you're truthful, uh, you're a person of integrity. That's what a just person is. And people see and recognize those traits, those qualities in your life. I hope in my life, and they can call Brother Lawrence a just man. I hope people can say that. Hope people can say that Brother Lawrence is a just man, a devout man. I want them to say that. And I vote for them to say that. I've got to live a just life and a devout life for them to say that about me. And I believe each one of you would like that to be said about you, would you not? It, it would be wonderful if one day when I'm buried beneath the sod of this earth, on my tombstone could say, here lies a just and a devout man. I hope that could be said about me. I don't know of anything else uh, I, I would could be comforted by the, to might be put on that and to say that about me when I'm, when I'm buried and no longer here, but people walk up and say, and see that there, here lies a just and a devout man. I want to live in a manner and way where people can say that about me. And I want you to live in a way in a manner, people can say that about you, that you're just and devout man. That's said about Simeon right here. Remember now I told you earlier, God sent an angel to direct the wise men, excuse me, the, the shepherds. He sent a star to direct the wise men. He's not going to use an angel. He's not going to use a star. He's going to use the Spirit of God. And he was revealed in him by the Holy Ghost. Let's back up. Uh, and behold, there was in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, which means he was waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. That's what that means. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. Here's a spiritually minded man. I love to be around spiritually minded people. I love to be around people that I can tell the Holy Ghost is upon them. And you don't have to jump up and click your heels five times in the air to be called that. Uh, you just live that kind of life. Your conversation is godly. Your conversation is spiritual. You show up in the house of God. You sing. You pray. You hear the preaching. Uh, and uh, you can tell, my friends, you're involved in it. You are connected to it. I like to be around people like that, don't you? Oh, I, I, I know people that it's okay to be around them, but they're, they're not like that. I want to be around people like Simeon is right here. The Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost he should not see death, for he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a promise. You know, by the, by the context here, it appears he was an old man. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't call him an old man. But somehow to me, if he was a real young man, I don't think he'd have probably said what he said here. I think he's uh, moving on to that category anyway. He, being older in life, his, the Holy Ghost has led him to the temple. He's in the right place at the right time. And I believe being in the right place at the right time. The only way I know to be in the right place at the right time is have the leadership of the Lord. You know, I was noticing one day reading uh, one of the uh, places in the Bible where it says about God taking Israel out of the land of Egypt, bringing him across Jordan's River, I mean the Red Sea in the wilderness. And he reminds me, he said, when I took you by the hand. When I took you by the hand. God says to an entire nation of people, I took you by the hand and led you across. I can remember being a real small person one time, <laughs> little toddler, and I can remember what it meant to me to reach up and have my dad take my hand in his hand. You remember things like that? Made you feel good, didn't it, to have your hand in the hand of your dad. 
And God says, I took you by the hand. And I led you across. The Holy Spirit led him into the temple. Right place, right time. He says, you will not see death till you've seen the Lord's Christ. That is, the Lord's Messiah. The Lord's anointed. And he came by the Spirit of God into the temple. And when his parents brought in the child, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law. Notice again that expression, the custom of the law, the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, the custom of the law. Then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. Simeon had just been given the promise he would not see death till he had seen the Lord's Christ. He not only got to see the Lord's Christ, he got to hold the Lord's Christ. He got to embrace the Lord's Christ. He got to actually touch him. He actually got to pick him up. I don't know if he picked him up or took him out of the hands or arms of Joseph and Mary, but nevertheless they allowed him to have him. And he takes the Lord Jesus Christ in his own arms and blesses God, which means he thanked God for this experience. And said, now let thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Yes, notice here, he didn't, uh, when he said thy salvation, it's Jesus and nobody else. <laughs> He's holding Christ. Let thy servant depart, let thy servant leave this world in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Your word has come to pass in my life. I did not see that till I had seen the Lord's Christ. I tell you, every time I come to the house, or every time I study the Word of God, I'm trying to see the Lord's Christ. When I'm trying to preach the gospel to you, I want to preach a Christ I can see. I want you to see the Christ that I see. I want you to see the Christ of the Bible. I want you to see the Christ of Scripture. I want you to see the Christ, my friends, that lived a holy life, a righteous life, an impeccable life. He lived a sinless life. I want you to see that picture of Jesus. I want you to see the picture of that one who was willing to be ridiculed, that one that was willing to be smitten, that one who was willing to have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. I want you to see that one who was willing to be nailed to a cross and have a sword pierce his side. I want you to see thy salvation, God's salvation. Notice it's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus. And this, I guess, of all the thoughts God has ever given me, and I think he's given me a few down through the, through the years. Of all the thoughts God's ever given me, when I've studied the Word of God, this next one is my favorite. As Simeon holds the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is holding him. John chapter 10, verses 25, 6 and 7. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I know my sheep, to hear my voice, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no man can pluck them, where? Out of my hand. And my Father which gave them me is greater than all, no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father of one. I'm telling you, Simeon was in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Had been in the hands of Christ ever since before time ever began, before the foundation of the world. And now as he's in the hands of Christ, Christ is in his hands. <laughs> that's my favorite. <laughs> it's not my only one, but that's my favorite. at the top of the list. Now, no one can say, let thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. I'm looking for a peaceful departure one sweet day. I really am. 
I, I, I've been around the bedside of, of a good many folks, my friends. They took their last breath. What a blessing it is to see that peaceful look on their face, that peaceful countenance. I believe God gives them at the time they draw their last breath and God's now going to receive their spirit right into glory. I believe they have a peaceful departure. But if you've seen the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel, if you've seen him in the written word of God, if you've seen him, my friends, in all the ways God's word presents him, when it comes time to draw that last breath, I'm going to tell you, you can be like Simeon and say, let thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. What could bring you greater peace than that? What could bring you greater peace than to see the face of Jesus? Yes, we're going to see him face to face, my friends, but I want to see him every way I can while I'm living in this world here. Every view I have of him brings calmness to my soul, brings a comfort to my heart. It brings a peace, my friends, uh, to my spirit. Let thy servant depart in peace. Why? Because mine eyes have seen thy salvation. <laughs> Simon didn't say, mine eyes have seen my salvation because uh, it's not based upon his works. He didn't say, I've seen the salvation provided somebody. He said, I've seen thy salvation. I'm ready to depart. I'm being, ready to be released. I'm ready to be untouched. I'm ready to leave this old world. I'm about ready to take my flight. Amen. <laughs> and Simeon left that temple a happy man. That's not the end of his experience there, but it's the end of my message this morning. <laughs> I want to close with this thought here in Ephesians 3.20. Unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. What was the promise to Simeon? You shall not see death till you've seen the Lord's Christ. You're going to see them both, but you're going to see the Lord's Christ before you see death. Didn't say a thing about holding him, did it? Not a thing. He not only got to see him, he got to hold him. I can just see him now, can't you? I really can. This older man, as he's got the Son of God in his arms, and he just draws him up real close to him. He said, let thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation.